Well, we're continuing now in our study of 2 Corinthians. We're taking a, a deep dive into this letter. We're going to take it slow. We're going to be thorough. We're going to keep it as simple and as clear, however, as possible, because the weightiness and the message of this letter is so very applicable in our day, as you will discover as we go through uh, the, the review of last, uh, the last lesson and today's lesson as well. Um, let us begin in part two here by reminding us of our text. We always want to begin with our text. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we'll begin with verse 15. But because this text begins with the word because, I want to first preface uh, our reading with a little bit of context. <clears throat> Paul is boasting, not in himself, not in his own resources, but in his conscience that testifies that he and his associates, uh, Timothy and Silas, have conducted themselves in the world and especially in their relationships with the church at Corinth with integrity and godly sincerity. Paul is advancing his own Christ-like character as his credential for his apostleship. And he goes on to say, We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. So it's the grace of God and the uh, image of Christ in him, the life of Christ in him, that is being shown forth, manifested to the Corinthian church as um, integrity, godly sincerity. In verse 13, he says, For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Paul is making the gospel very clear to them. Clearly, he and Timothy and, and Silas have preached the gospel in such a manner that these Corinthians had responded. They had a genuine conversion experience. But he goes on also to say that, um, uh, For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, our unity uh, between the, the unity between Paul and his associates and the church at Corinth was tied together in as much that they all share in the same gospel. And it's a gospel that the Corinthians have begun to understand in part, certainly enough so that it facilitated their conversion their regeneration, but Paul wants them now to understand the, the gospel more fully and that they will continue to grow in their understanding of the gospel. Because inasmuch as they've understood enough of the gospel to be um, converted, <clears throat> their conversion, they need to grow now. They need to develop in their fuller understanding of the gospel in order to facilitate their transformation. Now, this is an essential thing for you and I to understand in our day. Uh, for the last hundred years, especially, evangelists have run throughout the country 
given us just enough gospel to get us converted, but not enough gospel to get us transformed. They left us at the table without a full meal deal, without a whole counsel of God. And so they've um, served as uh, their own purposes. They've racked up numbers, as they would call them in, in the business world, but they haven't wrapped up people fully mature in Christ. So the Corinthians have understood enough of the gospel uh, in order to facilitate their conversion, but Paul uh, is very intent on the fact that he wants them to now understand the gospel more fully in order that they can be transformed, not just converted. So this leads us to our text, verse 15. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to, Mas to Judea. So Paul has plans. He has travel plans. And because he is so intent, this is so very important, because he is so intent that they continue to grow and fully understand the gospel in order to facilitate what? That's right, to facilitate their transformation, not just their conversion, but their transformation into ever-increasing conformity to the character of Christ himself. That he wanted to visit them twice. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Um, <clears throat> there's a rupture in the relationship. There are voices uh, critical of Paul within the Corinthian church, as well as a certain group of men who have come into the church from the outside and have um, asserted themselves to be uh, true apostles and called into question Paul and his credentials and even his gospel that he preached and asserted themselves as being the true apostles. And so the, the Corinthians now are, are confused. They're torn. Who do we believe? Do we believe Paul and his associates, or do we believe these new guys who have all the credentials, who have all the eloquence, who have everything going for them in a Greek society that we value? And so there's this rupture that has occurred. Consequently, Paul does not want to visit them again as he comes back from Macedonia. Instead, he wrote them a letter because there's this conflict going on. He wants to address them by letter, which he did. But in verse 17, then, of our text, he asks, Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? In other words, am I being wishy-washy? Am I not trustworthy? So then he goes on the defense and says, But as surely... As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. So now Paul is shifting gears a little bit here. He's he's beginning to point away from himself and to the message of the gospel 
and the promises of God as being the determining factor in the formation of his character as well as his message and thus therefore proving him to be trustworthy. Verse 20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both of us, you and uh, us, you, us and you, <laughs> excuse me, Paul is saying, it's you Corinthians and we, Timothy and Silas and Paul, who makes, it is God who makes both of us stand strong. You're not dependent upon me. We're in relationship. This is a this is a horizontal relationship that the Corinthians have with Paul. It isn't a vertical relationship. Paul isn't a elevated clergyman. He isn't an elevated bishop. He's not an elevated apostle. He's a servant of the church. So he says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. End quote. So, in our first lesson, part one, I spoke to you about the role of narrative. That it is the gospel narrative that formed Paul's character. The gospel narrative of God's faithfulness. God is faithful in his promises. Faithful in his promises to Israel. In the law and in the prophets. And that faithfulness is the ground of Paul's own personal faithfulness to the church at Corinth. And then he goes on to explain that God's faithfulness is measured in the fact that in Christ all the promises of God to Israel have been fulfilled in him. That's what he means by no matter how many promises God has made. They are all yes in Christ. They are all fulfilled in Christ. Though they are not yet fully realized, they are nonetheless fulfilled in the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ. So, it's the gospel narrative that we rely upon for our conversion and a fuller understanding in order to facilitate our transformation into the image of Christ. What's important to understand here about the fuller understanding is that the gospel narrative comes to us, as I told you last time, within a covenantal and eschatological framework, a context. Every narrative has a context that is absolutely essential to that narrative. And Paul is asserting that in this letter. He's asserting the fact that God is faithful and that God has indeed kept all his promises to Israel 
and that they are yes in Christ, meaning they are fulfilled in Christ. And that that narrative of the new covenant of the Spirit, whereby God's presence, his very own presence, has been restored to the people of God. And now this mystery has been revealed that the Gentiles are included in this message. They are included in the promises of God. And yet, then, as there are today, there were false apostles, false teaching, centered not around Jesus as the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to Israel, but centered on national Israel itself. In other words, um, there there are those then and there are those today that would draw your attention away from Jesus Christ and put it back on Israel and insist that those promises have not been fulfilled. And so they diminish the work and the person of Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he consecrated in his blood. So when Jesus uh, died, just before he died, he didn't say it is almost finished or it has begun. He said it is finished. It's a complete work. Now, I told you last time as well that when we speak then of this framework, it's a covenantal and eschatological framework. And I begged you not to be intimidated by those words. Um, this is part of the problem with American Christianity. Um, it, we are getting fed pablum, if anything, from the pulpits. And oftentimes we are just not given the, the fullness of the gospel. We are certainly given enough by evangelists and even by pastors to, to bring about conversions but not enough to bring about a transformation, as we're talking about now. And for you to move on and to ever-increasing conformity to Christ requires that you have a basic understanding of the fullness of the gospel narrative and the framework within which that narrative comes to you. Now, why is this important? It is important to you because the only, and please, I beg you, listen to me now. Only the narrative of the new covenant of the Spirit, which is really a synonym for the gospel, will serve to produce in you ever-increasing conformity to Christ. Only the gospel of the new covenant of the Spirit. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which we'll get to later, that in verse 6 he says, He, God, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
Paul's making it vividly clear here that he is a minister. He and his associates are ministers of the new covenant of the Spirit, which stands over and against all other comers, over and against all other Gospels. All other Gospels at that point ultimately, and then the final analysis, come down to some kind of gospel of the letter. What do I have to do to be saved? What must I continue to do to be saved? And how, in the final analysis, is it that I save myself? That's the competing gospel. That's the competing narrative. And I will say this. Any competing gospel narrative, in Paul's day or our day, that alters, redefines, or altogether dismisses the new covenant is nothing less than a satanic, energized, false gospel narrative. Now you say, well, Rick, that's, that's a little over the top. That's a little, <laughs> that's a little harsh. Well, I am, I am nothing compared to what Paul was. Paul was emphatic on this point. In fact, <clears throat> you might recall in Galatians chapter 1, he uh, didn't pull any punches at all. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See, any gospel that doesn't transform how you live is not a gospel. The gospel is not... You say a prayer, get saved, get your ticket punched to heaven, and then hang on by your sacramental uh, fingernails until Jesus comes back. That's not a gospel. The gospel not only is of your genuine initial conversion, your, your, the justification that you receive before a just and holy God, whereby you are now acceptable in his sight, and, and not only just acceptable, but adopted into his family, and then go on to become transformed into the very image of his son. And so he says, I'm astonished that you're deserting the one who has called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. At all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on to say, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Well, he doesn't just say it once. He goes on in the next verse to say it a second time. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Let this settle down deep into your heart and mind, beloved. And why do I say that so emphatically? Well, because it's the truth. We just read that. Paul took the same tact in our letter, our study letter, 2 Corinthians, later on in chapter 11, where he says, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. 
Paul is emphatic on this point. He's not looking for ecclesiastical uh, common ground. He's not trying to find some place of fellowship with these other apostles. He's pointing them out. He's exposing them for what they are. So let me say it again. Only the narrative of, of the new covenant of the Spirit, which is a synonym for the gospel, will serve to produce in you ever-increasing conformity to Christ. Therefore, any competing gospel narrative that alters, redefines, and altogether dismisses the new covenant is a satanic, energized, false gospel narrative. Paul was emphatic, as we just read on this truth, and so we too should be emphatic, especially given the fact that 95% or more of evangelicalism today is under the influence of either a dispensationalism or a reformed covenantal system, both theological systems, either one or the both of which alter, redefine, or altogether dismiss the new covenant of the Spirit. Now, I realize, <laughs> I realize the weightiness of what I just told you. But these are the times in which we live, beloved. These are the times in which we live. And we have to return to the text. We can't, we can't just get saved and then start just accepting whatever comes to us as being some kind of, as being the truth, and not examine it for ourselves. Why Paul says at the end of this letter, 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So I recognize that I'm making some very strong charges here, but it's not me making them. It is the study of 2 Corinthians, and I encourage you to read this letter. I encourage you, you can, you can get it on audio, you can listen to it within 20, 25 minutes, the full letter. Get familiar with this letter. Because what I'm saying to you is so very essential and important to your mental, relational, and spiritual health and well-being. So the last time we were together, I spoke to you about the covenantal structure. Now, again, don't let those two words, covenantal and eschatological, intimidate you. We're moving on now to understand the gospel more fully in its framework. The covenantal structure simply means that the new covenant, which was consecrated in Christ's own blood at the cross, is the fulfillment of all previous biblical covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant are all fulfilled in the new covenant. Now today, I want to complete this picture by speaking to you about the eschatological framework of the gospel. So the covenant, the new covenant, and the eschatology it produces in our narrative as a framework for our gospel narrative is essential for you to understand. For the simple reason, I'll say it again, that only the narrative of the new covenant of the Spirit which is a synonym for the gospel, 
will serve to produce in you the ever-increasing conformity to Christ that is your New Testament imperative. It's not an option. It's not something you can opt out of. God will see to it that you are conformed into the image of his Son. It's not about earning your salvation. It is about working out your salvation, which is an imperative. Paul said it in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, as you have always obeyed, do this also, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good purpose. And what is that purpose? That you become just like his son. Okay, this is, this is a weighty study, but that's good. That's big, you, you can't be transformed with shallow, superficial teaching. And I hope you've had enough of that. I know I did. It didn't do anything to transform my life, and consequently, quite frankly, my life once looked like that. But that was 25 years ago. It was only as I began to understand the gospel more fully in this framework that I'm sharing with you that my life began to transform and I began to experience and more importantly, as importantly, the people around me began to see that I was my character was changing. I was becoming a new creature. There was something about me. And what, it, what was it? Christ was being formed in me. And that's what I want for you. Okay, so let's talk now, in the time we have left, about the eschatological framework of the gospel. Now, you're probably aware of that frame, uh, that word, eschatological or eschatology. It's just a fancy word that means the study of end times, the study of end things. And ancient Israel, at the time this letter was written, and before, had an eschatology. They had a doctrine, a belief, a, a hope that was tied to the end day, the final judgment. They had an, a horizon to which they looked with hope that one day that Yahweh would intervene into human history, send the Messiah, and who would destroy all of God's enemies and restore Israel to her previous glory and uh, prominence in the world. And God's presence would be restored to the people of God. They believed that that was going to happen. That's what they were prepared for. A good practicing Jew was preparing him or herself, for that eventuality. And they were doing, the Pharisees had set up a whole system of works righteousness that could qualify you to enter that kingdom. But as you recall, when one of the leading Pharisees came to Jesus, Jesus immediately burst that bubble and said, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what was happening at that moment 
in that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John was that Jesus was bringing the future reality for which Nicodemus and all the Jewish people had hoped would come to, come to pass one day and for which he was preparing himself and brought it right into the present. So that Nicodemus was confronted by the Messiah and therefore by the very presence of God that he had hoped for. When he looked into the eyes of Jesus, he saw Yahweh. He saw the presence of God. And though Nicodemus was not fully aware of that at that moment, what Jesus was saying to him is that now is the time. And so when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus was talking about the promise in Ezekiel 36 that God would bring water and spirit and cleanse his people and put his spirit within them. Jesus was saying, I'm here to inaugurate the new covenant. And with that, the eschatology that Nicodemus and all other Jews had of an end day out in the future suddenly invaded the present. So with the coming of Jesus Christ, all the promises of Israel, all the promises to Israel, I should say, that had been made by Yahweh were occurring and being fulfilled. Not in some long-distance future, though there will be a future reconciliation, there will be a future judgment, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But Jesus came and inaugurated that eschatological reality into the present moment. So, the apostolic eschatology of the gospel is certainly of a future kingdom as well as a new creation, a new humanity, a new heaven, and a new earth. But it is a future that has already been inaugurated by Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is why later in chapter 5 of this letter, we will hear Paul say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The old what? The old creation has gone. In other words, God is treating everything about you today as if everything had already occurred that we had hoped for in the, at the end, in the moment. The new creation has come. With Christ's resurrection, the new creation had become, had come into play. The old has gone, the new is here. By the way, in the grammar, that is emphatic. The new is here, exclamation mark. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So, you and I, who are in union with Jesus Christ, are living out the life of the future in the present. And though it is yet to be fully realized, the old has gone. This age in which you and I live is very temporary. It's not going to last long. 
And the kingdom of God is now. The new creation has come. The writer of the Heath to the Hebrews speaks of Jesus and his new and better covenant, which was, quote, established on better promises. By calling this covenant new, says the writer, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. End quote. So Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant than that of Moses and the previous promises of God to Israel found within the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. Though it's not yet fully realized. This means Paul and his associates are preaching and living out a covenantal and eschatological paradigm. We are living, you and I, as followers of Christ, as those in union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension. We are in a status of now and not yet. And so were the Corinthians. The Corinthians have yet to fully understand, and I dare say most modern Christians do not understand what I'm saying at all. They're not being taught this. Listen, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is certainly true, but it is not the gospel in its fullness. Say this simple prayer and you're in, and then begin to come to church and pay and pray is not the fullness of the gospel. What passes as the gospel in America is a, such a reductionist version of the gospel most Christians are walking around so spiritually malnourished, it's pathetic, it's, it's criminal. So this is your chance to learn and apply this paradigm. Not because I'm anything, not because I'm coming up with anything, but the text of 2 Corinthians is telling us, God's inspired and holy and fully inspired and inerrant word is giving this to us. Read it for yourself. Be a Berean. Study to see if these things are true. But let me warn you, you're going to have to set aside any existing systematic paradigm that you might be ascribing to right now. If you grew up or you're part of a dispensational church right now, you're going to have to be willing to examine that system in the light of Scripture. If you're part of a Presbyterian or Reformed or Covenantal structure, you're going to have to be willing to examine that system in light of the Scripture. This is you would, That would be nothing new. It is not a new thing that men have advanced tradition over the Scripture throughout redemptive history. Jesus told the Pharisees in Mark chapter uh, 7, verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. That was in the emphatic as two, by the way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had, had set up a whole system, and the average Jew believed it as if it were gospel, they were, they were submitted to the teaching of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, and, and the whole tradition had been set up. You just didn't question it. If you're a good Jew, you didn't question the Pharisees' teaching. If you did, you were an outcast. You were a, quote, sinner, end quote. 
It just so happens that Jesus came and started eating with those sinners because they didn't have such a strong traditional paradigm already in place that they couldn't hear him. And I, that's my warning to you too. Be careful of the tradition that's so strong and so in place that you're not willing to hear Jesus anymore. So this is your chance to learn and apply this, this gospel paradigm of the new covenant of the Spirit. So, Paul's opponents in Corinth rejected this framework that I'm talking about. They insisted that while Christ was in part of God's plan, it was in fact national Israel itself that remained God's focus. And the old covenant remains binding upon the life and consciousness of the believer, conscious of the believer. That's why, that's why, they, uh, that's why Paul said that they were ministers of the letter. So, only the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit will facilitate ever-increasing conformity to Christ. And beloved, it's time to quit playing nice with those who offer you alternative Gospels. What is at stake is whether the image of Christ will be made known to the world through you and through the church. Finally, let me just say, Paul and his associates have preached the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises to Israel have been fulfilled. And the covenantal and eschatological framework of the gospel is that of a new and better covenant, a new creation, and the restoration, most importantly, of the presence of God to his people by the gift of the Spirit. And you and I now await the full realization of all this with the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven, when we will receive new bodies likened to his glorified body. Now this means that the believer is not working to find reconciliation with God, but has been reconciled by God's work in Christ. Salvation is an accomplished fact, it's an accomplished reality, though again it is yet to be fully realized. And we must never misinterpret the fact that this salvation is not yet fully realized to mean that salvation is yet to be accomplished. We are not saved, now hear me now, we are not saved on some probationary basis subject to our good works. I once went to school with a a woman, a lovely woman, who is a member of the Orthodox Church. And she told me one time that at baptism, that God reserved a place for her in heaven. But in order for her to maintain that reservation, she had to spend her life doing good works or else she would lose that reservation in heaven. There's another example of a false narrative. She was a lovely person, a nice enough person, but she was being robbed of the truth. So this is what Paul means when he says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. This letter is an incredibly God-focused and God-centered letter. And it reveals that salvation is the work of the triune God. 
and that there's an eschatological and covenantal structure to the gospel that very few Christians ever go on to understand. And consequently, they are robbed of the narrative that transforms them. They stay immature and weak and malnourished the rest of their lives. And that angers me. That breaks my heart. So I hope you're hearing me in this study. We're going to continue in our study of 2 Corinthians. Because we have this narrative of the new covenant of the Spirit that we must continue to grow in our understanding. I want this to get down into a cellular level for you. Paul writes in our text, quote, He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There's nothing of a probationary salvation there, is there? God anointed us, which means basically he Christed us, he Christed us, brought us into union with the anointed one, Jesus Christ. God has set his seal of ownership on you, so the world, the flesh, and the devil have no more claim upon you. You have been purchased, beloved, with a price. And the eschatological spirit has sealed you as God's own possession and indwelt you as a deposit, guaranteeing was yet to come in the moment, in the present. And what is to come? The fullness of your redemption. The redemption of your body into a glorified body like unto Christ, as well as a new heaven and a new earth within which the people of God will live out eternity in glory. Well, we're going to continue this study of 2 Corinthians, but this has been part two of a two-part lesson based upon 1 Corinthians 1, 15-22. The divine yes in Christ. I encourage you to listen to this more than once. I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to read the text many times. And again, I, let me encourage you to join me in reading 2 Corinthians. In fact, let me encourage you to join me into this deep dive that, we're gonna, that we are taking presently into 2 Corinthians. And may this be something, however long it takes, months or years, that we get the full, unmitigated, undiminished uh, measure of what God intends for us to get from this study. May the Lord continue to give you his grace, strengthen you in all good things as you grow in the image of Jesus Christ.